Welcome to the 11th episode of Probably Polly. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I write, speak, and create artwork about ethical non-monogamy in general and polyamory in specific. And I am Sarah Lucas. I have been practicing polyamory for about 18 months now. I am a student at a local university studying consensual non-monogamy and child rearing. Today on the podcast, I'd like to do something a little different than we normally do, which is that really if you look at what we most of the time do, we, we are synthesizing information that we have available to us to answer common questions or to present sort of larger information in a condensed scale. But what we're going to do today is I'm going to use or present one of my own frameworks, one of my own philosophical theories and, and frameworks that I apply in my day-to-day life. In a lot of ways, of course, that's similar because that is a synthesis, but it's a synthesis of much more information. It's so much information that I'm not going to be able to say, like, well, I got this from this book and this from this book because it's years of information compressed down into this sort of theory. So what this theory helps us understand is why people that we interact with appear to do harmful things while thinking that they're doing good things. And then really, really believe it. Like, why do people get up in the morning and go protest gay weddings? What causes that kind of... Because that's a lot of work and a lot of effort, and you're getting nothing out of it except for social censure, maybe. And, and so there's this question about what causes people to believe in something so fervently that it's the right thing to do, that they'll actually injure themselves over it while... For most of us, it looks like the obviously wrong thing. Mm -hmm. To draw that connection, if it's not entirely obvious to why that's a valuable skill set for people who might be listening to this podcast, you interact with people as family, as friends, as love interests, and all of them are going to do things where they think they're doing the right thing, and you you are going to think they're like an evil villain, and you're not going to know why and they're not going to know why, and you're going to have this really weird disconnect. Yeah, I experience that a lot in my romantic relationships. I always wonder, like, is this thing that I'm doing that I think is so right, is it really being perceived as something that is good? Is Is it really right in this moment? And it's hard to tell. And what gave me the idea to finally tackle this podcast is I got this beta fish that I adopted as the Goodwill mission, whose name is Nietzsche. The beta. Who is actually swimming back and forth in the tank, trying to convince me to give him more food as we talk. With the little shrimpies. With his shrimp friends. (laughs) And what was really interesting to me about my journey with trying to set up a humane fish tank for Nietzsche is that people who are in the pet store, whose job it is to help you understand your pet's needs, and who in each case that I interact with them actually had and presumably loved betas as pets at home, were treating them cruelly. Mm-hmm. Thinking they were doing good things. And it, it ended up being a perfectly simplified sort of, I can, I can just go through and tell you guys the story of this fish and then explain how each step relates to this theory. And I feel like it's going to make it possible to explain this in a, in a coherent space in a shorter period of time than if I was trying to sort of delve into it at a deep level theory. All right, so here, so here goes. I had a neighbor, they asked me to take care of this fish. He was in this tiny half gallon fish bowl. And it's just tiny, <sighs> just, just really tiny. And they didn't give me any dechlorinator 
And when I asked if they, the fish had to chlorinate, or they the the person just sort of laughed and was dismissive about that as they don't need the chlorinator; they can just use, you know, tap water. And by the way, I used to be really into fish when I was like 12 because I was copying my brother who was really into fish. I didn't know. And that. so I I remembered some stuff about how fish work, and one of the things that I remember was that you always have to dechlorinate fish water. That even if you get like a goldfish from a fair, you're supposed to dechlorinate their fish water. This explains my uh, my fish that died in high school. This explains some things. <laughs> you got a goldfish? I, I had a, I, had, I don't even know what kind of fish it was, but it jumped out of its bowl, and I, I can't say this is not related to me not dechlorinating the water. So I, I thought, okay, well, the, the first basic step before I get angry is to go and do research. Yes. Yeah, I love research. I'm really good at research. And so what I did first was I got online and did a lot of research. All right. So I will spare you the painstaking details of tracking down good information on beta fish and instead tell you sort of the key things I found. And if you want to fight me on them, you respond, comment, message, and I will send you like 40 citations. So... <laughs> Uh, beta fish need a temperature between 76 and 82 degrees Fahrenheit because they come from very tropical environments. Like all fish, they require good filtration mm-hmm. and regular cleaning of aquariums. They are also a particularly intelligent fish. They can do tricks. Mine jumps up to hand feed from me. So I, I hold food over the tank and he jumps up and eats from my hand mm-hmm. instead of being fed in the tank like a normal fish. Which is so cool. And so they require enrichments, which is what they call in, in pet talk, for them to play with. So plants, fish, caves, mazes, whatever, basically entertainment because they can get bored. If you're not 100% sure if this is at least a legitimate thing to be concerned about, like fish needs, uh, in 2004, a city in Italy actually banned keeping goldfish in bowls because of the, the torture, like the, the, the inhumanity of it, basically, how inhumane it is for the animals. So a council of government officials negotiated this for a long time somewhere in the world and was like, yeah, that's a problem. Let's not do that to fish. Interesting. You know, so a lot of the websites I was reading, though, the thing that I kept seeing was don't buy fish from fish stores that promote betas being in small tanks. Mm-hmm. The other thing that betas needed was a, was a minimum of a five-gallon tank. It needs to be able to have a stable nitrogen cycle, and it needs to be heated. And below five gallons, there just are not filters or heaters that function below five gallons. Hmm. Not reliably. Okay. Nitrogen is so bad, it literally burns the animal if it gets too high. Wow. It's like acid. So it's like swimming in acid. So as a, as a quick conversion for people who like to say things like, well, the fish does fine in its half-gallon bowl. I don't know how you're checking for doing fine. You can't interview your fish. Mm-hmm. We have humans in supermax cells that are like four foot by five foot that never get other human contact. And they're alive. Mm-hmm. It didn't, doesn't yeah. kill them. If that's your only test, it doesn't tell you if you're treating the animal humanely. Right. I went to the local aquariums that I could find, not aquariums, the local fish pet stores, both the big chains and the like the one-off local stores, because I was trying to avoid supporting unethical fish-keeping practices. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, I was just super depressed, because here I've rescued this fish, I'm putting literally hundreds of dollars into creating the environment that this fish needs to be happy. And in both fish stores... There's a wall of like a hundred betas in a rubber cup mm-hmm. that's like an eighth of a gallon, and they're selling these tiny half gallon, one gallon tanks and calling them ideal beta tanks. And all the research I've done says this is just a complete and utter lie. Hmm. And what's weird is the people that work at pet stores, in my experience by and large, really like pets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I ran into that was even weirder for me was I was I would ask them, okay, well, what does my beta need? 
for this? And the, the person would say, so this is my experience at, say, the one-off pet store, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the small pet store that's supposed to be the more ethical pet store because it's locally owned and it's people that actually understand how the animals work. And I said, do you have a five-gallon tank? He said, no, I have these, you know, they have this one-gallon and 1.5, two-gallon tanks for the betas. And I said, I thought that those were not big enough to give the beta a healthy environment. Uh -huh. And the guy's like, no, no, betas are fine. Betas are fine in this environment. And I was like, okay, well, I've been doing research and I, I said it <laughs> wrong, though. I said, I actually said I was, I l was checking on this on the internet and found they need a minimum of five gallons. <laughs> and the guy just super dismissively looks at me and is just like, yeah, the internet says a lot of things. Oh, God. <laughs> and like super insulting and like super mean. He was super salty. He was very offended that I was saying that the, I mean, it was very clear that he was, he was morally outraged that I was telling him that his fish tanks were unethical. Ah, uh, yes. So what's interesting is not only was he doing something that is unethical, which is promoting the sale of fish that are basically being tortured in the homes they go to and usually end up dying, mm -hmm. but he actually has moral indignation at the idea that these are not suitable home so yeah. he is invested in believing that these are ethical homes right and and uh in, indignant about the idea that you were questioning his knowledge on such things whereas he probably didn't research uh 40 different articles on how a beta fish is supposed to be happy and treated right yeah no that's almost certainly true so right. then you know i was really upset at the small one-off store and i was like well then i'm gonna go shop at the big box store if the one-off store is gonna be this terrible about it mm -hmm. and i was actually slightly better off one of the people i worked with that I, I worked with at the big box store owned a beta and she was saying how much she liked the things i was getting for my tank and i was talking about how depressing it was that they had all these betas and she's like yeah but what you're gonna do every store sells betas like that i know it's horrible but i don't know what else to do uh, and she was just like a clerk, and that's fine. I mean, yeah. she at least understood the situation she was in. She needed the paycheck. She felt bad about it. She was encouraging people. That's fine. So, but fast forward a week, I come back, and I have to return a heater that broke. Mm -hmm. And they send a manager out to help me return the heater. And while we're returning it, he's just looking at me really confused. He, and eventually, he's like, why do you have a heater for your beta tank? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, betas need a minimum temperature of 76 degrees. And he was like that's not true your house is just your house temperature is just fine uh -huh. <laughs> and i'm like uh it's definitely not fine <laughs> it needs this heater and he's like well i have five betas oh, by the way if you have five betas you have five separate tanks this guy's like entire life is beta fish and none <laughs> of his beta fish have heaters so he's just got he's just torturing all of what he thinks of as his best friends oh, as his wards he has this uh, guardianship relationship with them it's a big part of his sense of self and he is literally torturing them. You know, yeah. and it's funny because some of the articles you'll find, not real articles, but like from fish stores, uh -huh. will will code the language so that it doesn't sound so horrible, right? So they'll say things like, um, your fish is most active if you get to 76 degrees. Yeah, a person who's freezing will be in a corner shivering. They won't be very active. Yeah, seriously, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fish isn't just most active at 76. 76 to 82 degrees is, is what the, the temperature fish the fish needs. Mm -hmm. Most fish do not do well in varieties of temperatures. There's usually just one temperature. And part of the problem is that normal aquarium fish only need it between 68 and 76. So if you have a 70 degree or 72 degree house where you keep your house at, in no, like every other fish in your aquarium will be fine. Mm -hmm. Okay, not, that know, makes most sense. Of them. But betas are going to be freezing. 
unless you're all the way up at 76, which no one keeps their house at 76. Oh, and sometimes so, you know, I do. So this guy's like, yeah, I keep my house at 68 degrees, and my fish are fine. And I'm like, your fish oh. is, like, that's, that's like, 10 degrees below what your fish needs. So if you think about whatever temperature you're comfortable, like 72 degrees, and then assume that it would be, like, living permanently at 66 degrees. Uh, yeah. Like getting up every day in 66 degree weather. And you're a fish. And never so having you a coat. Like put on a coat. Yeah. You can't get a quilt. <laughs> Right. And but the thing is, this guy was so funny because he's a manager of a pet store and he was trying to convince me not even to buy a new heater, like just to return my heater and get my money back. So he was trying to help. Right. He was trying. He was he in his mind was doing a really good thing. He was saving Mm -hmm. a nice working class guy money um, by Mm -hmm. buying a superfluous item he doesn't need. He's promoting fish knowledge. He's generally increasing happiness and well-being in the world. Like he was doing everything inside of his knowledge to be a good person mm-hmm. and i'm just staring at him going oh you're just you're the worst <laughs> you're so bad because you have the opportunity to tell so many hundreds of people you have the opportunity to tell so many hundreds of people the best way to to help their fish and you're going to tell all of them not even to have a heater mm-hmm. you're going to yeah. be selling them undersized tanks with no heaters and no filters and recommending yeah. like 100 percent water changes which if you don't know is a terrible thing for fish mm. i um, didn't this is good. This is why this podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. In addition to learning ethics, you will learn how to take care of fish if you listen to this podcast long enough. Yay! <laughs> so, so, so what's going on, right? So why why are a group of people who are, I mean, this is their careers, I mean, pretty educated about these topics, still so wrong? Mm-hmm. And part of the problem, of course, is capitalism, which I'm just going to throw away and not get into 2D because I'm not going to play with capitalism on this, but that is to say the stores have a company line that explains their practices. Now, the store actually does whatever makes the most money, but it tells its employees that it's a combination of making money and ethical practices, right? So the store is going to say we do best practices in fish shipping, we do best practices in fish storage. Okay, yeah, our store is only 68 degrees and the fish are in freaking one-quarter-gallon cups, but I'm sure they're fine. Because yeah. these fish can live in only two inches of water and don't need uh, a heater. Yeah. And then, of course, when you as a layperson come into a store where these people are supposed to be experts, they're supposed to teach you how to take care of your animals. They, you know, they sell themselves as being able to help you through the process of setting up a really good tank for your animals. And you see that a third of the store is beta fish displays for one-gallon tanks, for mm-hmm. half-gallon tanks, for 1.5-gallon tanks. It, it reinforces that that's acceptable so that when then you go online as not a research expert and you look at four articles that you find really easily, you don't know which ones are right and which ones are lying to you or self-serving in some way. And you're just going to say, well, if everything seems equal and everyone's doing this, it must be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go out and then you're the guy who has five beta tanks that are all under temperature. And then what happens is you get mentally invested in this problem. So now if I come in and try and tell you, or the guy at the other store, that beta fish are unhealthy without a heater, that beta fish are unhealthy in a two-gallon tank, you have to decide if you're a horrible person that's told hundreds of people how to torture their fish, mm-hmm. or if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, One because of... they work there, they're going to think, well, dude, you just looked up a t- like an article or two. You don't know what you're talking about. I work here. I sell these creatures. Like, go away. Get out of my store. And one of those two things is way easier than the other, by the way. It's way easier to assume that you're correct than it is to go and do the work to one, truly research the topic. Mm. And then once you have researched the topic, I mean, in their case, they know that if, the top, that if I'm right, 
they're going to have to fundamentally change something about their life or accept just being unethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Which they're not going to do. Right. Which is very difficult to do. Not that they're not going to do. I'm sure someone's done it, but it's very difficult to do. That's true. Yeah. And, and that's that's the first core part of my, my theory, which is that anytime you encounter any sort of inconsistency, you have two options. You can face an attempt to integrate the inconsistency and see what's really going on, or you can say that it's not an inconsistency, it's how life just is, and that everyone has that same situation. Mm-hmm. There's a whole cultures designed to help you hide from these inconvenient truths. Think about the sitcom in America. The standard sitcom in America is, right, a dumb guy mm-hmm. married to an attractive, smart, horribly sociopathic woman. Okay. Right? I mean, think about like anything show you can think of, like King of Queens, right? Big guy, thin woman that only cares about herself. Uh, Simpsons, big guy, thin woman who's really self-absorbed. Um, when you actually look at Marge's storylines, they're really weirdly about Marge, you know, like, right? like any any sitcom you can think of. Um, oh, uh, what is it? A uh, Family Guy, right? I mean, it's the extreme version of that because it's, oh, it's a parody. Yeah. But it's big guy, really sociopathic woman. Like, this is this is every sitcom you will ever see, mm-hmm. right? It's like 60% of sitcoms. And then in all of them, they make jokes about having no sex life, about the being very disappointed in each mm-hmm. other. And then they'll say things like, but that's just marriage. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so what this does, and the reason these sorts of shows are popular is because when you tune in and you watch that and your life is better than that, you think, well, I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. I don't need to fix the fact that my wife and I haven't had sex in six mm-hmm. months because nobody does. Yeah. Normalize it. I don't need to fix that I want to cheat because everybody does. I don't have to fix that. And so you're deciding that it is correct rather than investigating. Yeah. What we talk about is being a critical review. Mm -hmm. When we talk about I have to critically review each of my beliefs. Now, by the way, sometimes when you critically review a belief, you'll find out that you are right. Mm -hmm. Like after that dude was like, you're just wrong. I went home and I re-researched fish tank sizes for betas because I was like, well, here's an expert who thinks he knows that I'm incorrect about this. Mm -hmm. And when the other guy was like, you don't need heaters, I went back and I re-researched betas fish. Right. And I spent a critical eye to the articles I was looking at and the sources I was looking at. So that's the other side of this is that you really need to always do that work, even if you're very confident yeah. that you've got it right. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the big the big term. The reason that good people do bad things is because they're scared of being labeled as bad. Hmm. And what I mean by that is our culture is based on the idea that one can be a good person and one can be a bad person and that you are to blame for everything you've ever done wrong. Okay. We love to vilify yes, we do. in our culture. <laughs> And what that does is it makes it impossible for people to take responsibility for their own problems and then fix them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we touched on this the other day with drugs, that with drugs in America, it's a downward cycle because once you get on drugs, which people get on because they're lacking in healthy human connections, people vilify you and squeeze you out of their lives, yep. which causes you to lack healthy human connections, which causes you to turn to drugs, which in turn causes you to become vilified. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a gentleman who's done a lot of research on addiction, and he very much supports the idea that the opposite of addiction is is not sobriety, it's connection. Same. I read same that thing. article. Did, did you really? I saw it on <laughs> yeah, the YouTube. He has, a good article. He's written a book, too. I can never remember his name. And, and you know, if, if you don't believe the research, you can look at the places, like we talked about before, um, that have overcome drugs. So I'll use a new 
in new ones they already did one but this one was the there's a a homeless shelter that gives you free alcohol and a room to live in to call your own that's the most successful at fixing homelessness and alcoholics of any homeless shelter ever makes sense because it, right, it gives them a sense of ownership and of pride and of being a human being right and they eventually don't want to drink anymore because it makes them like embarrassed yeah right? because they actually have things that they care about right russell brand actually he's got this idea and is trying to promote this idea in in europe um, because he was once a heroin addict which the idea is basically that if we were to legalize these drugs we wouldn't be segregating these individuals and marginalizing them as just being bad people and they would no longer have to hide it and it would be easier for them to overcome it. There's a country that he talks about in a documentary where that's exactly what they did and the drug usage and abusage went down significantly because they were being integrated back into society rather than being vilified. Yes. We talked about that before and it is Portugal. Portugal, which had the highest use of drug use and drug crimes in the world, legalized all drugs and 10 years later has the lowest drug use the lowest instances of deaths from drugs and like drug related violence and drug crimes of any first world country yeah and it's just it's amazing really and it's ridiculous because it's such a better solution right. oh, by the way there's a, there's two parts to that solution though so the the portugal situation they actually because they were just drowning in this drug problem they commissioned these massive research studies to figure out what they could do and the research studies came back and said you, you need a two-part answer the first thing is you need to legalize every drug but the second thing is you need to sell the drugs um, as the country and then you need to take the profit from those drugs and put them into free drug clinics yep yep that makes sense. So they provided an unlimited, extraordinary, like the, the highest quality drug therapies in the world for free. Yeah, I actually remember in that documentary, they they had safe needles that they could use for their, their heroin or whatever drugs it was they were using. I'm not right. familiar with drugs at all but and this is why i don't like the language good and evil it's why i focus on the language pro-social and anti-social when you are focused on who's wrong there's a lot of hurt to be thrown around and there's no way to get it improving the system Mm -hmm. because this the the focus doesn't end up being on how can we improve the problem it ends up being on how can i avoid being the one who's at fault yeah and i can do a you know a really quick like how did this work in my life today you know, that it comes up that often, right? So I was fasting today. I fast two days a week and I was heading up to shower with my wife. She propped the door open when we walked inside and I turned and I said, could you not do that? Only I didn't. I said something like, could you not do that? <laughs> with with angry face and, and, and all because I had, you know, extraordinarily low blood sugar and I had been working all day in a very physically demanding environment with no food. In my mind, I have, and I know I have, told her dozens if not hundreds of times that I want both doors closed when I'm showering so that it's warm. Mm. And, you know, she's propping the door open while I'm just trying to get into the shower after a very, very long day. She was mad at me for being unjustly or over-the-top mad at her. Mm-hmm. I can imagine myself at an earlier time, because I'm sure I've done this, being mad at her for not remembering the hundreds of discussions we've had about how I want the door closed, and then being mad at me for having an honest emotional response to it. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, neither of those responses are useful responses. They don't actually bring us closer together. They don't fix the problem. They don't even make it less likely that it will happen again. Mm-hmm. They're all about deciding who was at fault so that we can both feel superior to the other person without actually improving ourselves. Interesting perspective. I'm seeing now the the good and evil versus the pro-social and anti-social. Comparing that to the story you're sharing right now, which verbiage would I use about this? And that's it's opening my mind to this a little bit. 
And so what's actually going on there is that we're both having unconscious emotional responses faster than we're capable of sorting them. Mm-hmm. You know, because my blood glucose is low, I have low brain sugar, which makes it me have poor impulse control, as we discussed in a previous episode. Yeah. <laughs> And so I got mad before I realized I shouldn't get mad. And even though I apologized right afterwards, she was having to process seeing me mad at her, Mm. which was causing her to have a genuine emotional response of feeling hurt and attacked for no reason. Mm. Of course, that was then hard for me because then I'm like, well, now she's upset and I didn't really do anything wrong. I just had this natural response that I couldn't help. And you'd see that going around forever and ever. And I've been in relationships where that went around forever and ever. And and little things like that never went away. never got resolved. Mm. But if you if you take away the blame part of it and both of you think, okay, how can I resolve this? By the way, I am also really bad at just the standard sitcom line, tell the woman what she wants to hear. Oh. Can't, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't. I am I am really honest. So like I eventually had to say a sentence like, I'm processing how to try and tell you that I am sad that I upset you, but that I upset you through a natural emotional reaction that I know that I'm not capable of helping. And that you upset me by the fact that you forgot things that I said, which you are not capable of helping. Mm. So nobody did anything wrong, but we're both really unhappy right now about it. And I'd (laughs) like to get to the other side of that somehow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Very, very clear way to state that that's funny and to some extent this this ties into you know obviously all the all of the stuff always ties together right but this ties into i talked about protest gestures before mm-hmm. right so my anger face was a protest gesture against having to solve one more problem yeah in my day yeah i'd done so many things in my day i'd overcome so much already and there's just one more problem right to deal with and so i responded poorly right <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that uh, chances are a part of the reason why it seemed more natural for you to respond that way to her someone that you're close to is because you have been emotionally vulnerable to her so it's easier for you to be emotionally vulnerable in that moment and snap rather than like if it were a stranger you wouldn't be so emotionally vulnerable so i'm getting off topic no no you're 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 probably completely right i do not do that as often with strangers Mm -hmm. i'm much more even keeled but partly it's because i don't care about strangers and strangers are not in the innermost sanctum of my life right like strangers aren't messing up my shower time that's if true. you're a stranger and you're messing up my shower time I promise you you're getting a lot more than just a quick could you please not from me <laughs> angry or not <laughs> it's going to be really problematic very quick <laughs> So that's that's the other thing is that the you know the the people that are closest to you are the ones that are in the areas that are hardest for you to negotiate because you're the rawest. Yeah. It's when you've already burned off all of your mental energy and you're in your most available state. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is that we create these investitures where we think if I'm wrong about this, I'm a bad person, and people don't want to think of themselves as a bad person. Right. And I was I've been reading a series of articles, um, at least one by a former student of mine, Thomas Gilliam, that are about one of the reasons that we can't get past toxic masculinity is because the men who are doing these things don't see themselves as predators. Yep. So they refuse to see the behaviors that they engage in as predatory. Yep. Interesting kind of conundrum that the ones that need it most are the ones that deny it's even happening. But not even them. That's not the problem. The problem is in the people that are in the intermediate group. We talk about why is 
it a staple of our society that young boys who like girls pick on them in elementary school chase them hit them <laughs> etc yeah right like it's a it's, it's a violent expression that we would not accept for almost anything else a little boy that chases other little boys around hitting them with sticks gets in trouble but a little boy that chases girls to grab them or look up their skirt or whatever is much more accepted yeah and it's accepted because everyone goes well that's what little boys do to show they like little girls and little girls get lectures like oh you shouldn't be mad at him he just likes you goodness and but 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 the reason is because people look at that little boy and go, well, he's not a bad person, clearly. Mm-hmm. So this behavior can't be a bad behavior because he'd have to be a bad person. And that's just insane. Yeah, absolutely. And this is that sort of existential point, which is that you aren't any of your past actions. You just are this potential for future action. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it that way, instead of having to think, well, did I do all these horrible things? Am I a bad person? Even if you did all those horrible things, if you recognize it and you learn how to not do them anymore, you're not a bad person. Right. Agreed. You have done bad things. Yeah. This past snippet of you might have been a bad person to be around. You might have been unhealthy and damaging and antisocial, but you are not fundamentally bad. Right. You just engaged in toxic behaviors. Right. And and it's this culture of, of blame and praise, moral blame and praise, that I think makes it incredibly difficult for us to actually fix the problems. How so? Elaborate. Well, because it makes us always ask the wrong question. The first question people ask, am I wrong? Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, no, you're just, you're literally never wrong and my first response is no because they need to know that they're not wrong like if you feel predated you're functionally predated that's all that matters it only matters that you feel that way it doesn't matter what their intention was if they you know someone doesn't intend to hurt you and they run you over with their car you're still run over with a car like it doesn't matter what their intention was right exactly you know what matters is finding systems that make less people get run over with cars which is you know in another great parallel america has some of the highest traffic incident rates because we're the most invested in determining blame and assigning outcomes based on blame. So in America, if you get in a wreck and it wasn't your fault, you don't pay for anything. The other person pays for everything. There's no downside for you. Yeah. So you see things like people driving down a lane. Someone else needs to merge. They're in the side lane and someone going, I'm not letting them over. They're just trying to, to cut in. And if they merge and they hit me, that'll be their fault and they'll have to pay for everything. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible mentality to avoid road fatalities. Yeah. That is not good for anybody. <laughs> Yeah. By contrast, there's been a lot of studies done on Taiwan because Taiwan has, per density, some of the lowest accident rates in the entire world. What they found was they, they described as a fishbowl culture, which is Taiwan does not have liability insurance. Okay. You can only get insurance for yourself. Interesting. When I was visiting Taiwan, I met a guy who was talking about how he, you know, he scrimped and saved and just bought a new car and he was driving to work a week earlier and someone on a scooter hit him straight up on the side of his door, just ran into the door panel full force, wow. bounced off, got up, went, so sorry, and then left. Okay. And there's no there's no legal repercussion for that because there's nothing to do with that. So that guy had to pay to fix his own door panel or have a broken door panel, which is what he had because he didn't have the money to fix his door Goodness. panel. But what that does is it turns everyone in the entire country into a defensive driver. Yeah. Right. So Taiwan almost doesn't have road rules. They actually, and that's why it's called the fishbowl, they talk about bigger wins. So like when we'd be driving on the expressway, a tractor trailer truck, for instance, would just signal and just get over. It wouldn't look, it wouldn't try and get anyone out of the way, and everyone else would just dodge around. (laughs) Interesting. Because it's a tractor trailer, and that is exactly how you should treat a tractor trailer, as if it's a giant terrifying shark that's trying to murder you. Oh, yes, that is exactly exactly it, because it can absolutely kill you. I like that uh, analogy. (laughs) So in a world where if anything happens to your car, you have to fix it, and you rely on your car, like Mm -hmm. we do in America... 
people are incredibly defensive driving. They are right. very protective. And so despite the incredible density of their cities, which are on par with New York style, like 8 million people in these small cities, because they're a tiny island country like Japan, they have very low accident rates because everyone is taking responsibility for themselves. Interesting. Instead of looking to bl- who, for who to blame. Yeah. So even if you apply that modality to your day-to-day life, you know, like, okay, well, we're having a fight, but could I solve it? Right. You will find that there's an amazing number of situations that are entirely able to be worked out by that approach that you never felt like could be worked out. Like people that just for some reason seem unnecessarily antagonistic to just hate you from the get-go and you never know why. Going up to them and saying, hey, I don't know what I did, but I'm genuinely sorry for whatever I did that hurt you so much that you're attacking me the way that you are. Like, I must have done something really bad. There must have been something happening. And I've done that. I've done that in a college class where a guy was just ripping into me every time I talked. I went up to him after class. Well, actually, first I went up to him after class and was like, I don't know why you think it's socially appropriate to talk to me that way in a class. It's entirely not appropriate. And he was like, basically, fuck you, you piece of shit, and left. (laughs) Um, And then the next week, after I'd had time to think about it with a very cool head, I came back, and after class I said, hey, I wanted to say sorry for last week. I don't know what I did that hurt you enough to want to respond that way to me during class, but I'm genuinely sorry for whatever it was, and if you tell me what it is, I would like to work on not doing it in the future. And then he just, like, broke down. I was like, I was having a terrible week and some personal social thing, and it wasn't you at all, and, you know, I'm really sorry that I yelled at you, and we were, like, best friends for the rest of class because he was just so grateful for that response. And the thing is, he didn't... I mean, it's not that he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he did do something wrong. He lashed out at me for his own emotional issues. Mm -hmm. But who cares? What's, like, how is that wrong? Like, our job isn't to be right or wrong. Our job is to get along with other people and to make a better place. Yeah. Yeah, that mentality, it's it's so beautiful. It's so hard to maintain, though. Personally, I do, I try my best to do the same thing with my my interpersonal relationships is just try not to assign blame because it doesn't matter like you said it just it doesn't matter who's at fault what matters is taking care of it and moving forward and trying to decide if you're going to go get closer together or split further apart over whatever it is it's it's tricky i think that's the flip side though is that because we're all associated with the assigning blame we also think that if someone is blameless they can't have i like to use the word culpability mm-hmm. and i think that you can be blameless and culpable okay. I, I have a friend who for whatever reason is a terrifying driver i will not ride in that person's car they're not a bad person they don't really do anything wrong per se but i they are culpable in the sense that they are not someone who for me it's safe to ride in their car it makes me nervous it makes me unhappy mm-hmm. and so i have to draw a hard boundary and say i'm not going to be in your car you know and they'll say well i don't ever get into wrecks and i'm like i don't care the way that yeah. you drive terrifies me. It doesn't, and maybe it's not bad. Maybe they really are like a stunt car driver and that's why they never get in wrecks. But it's not healthy for me. You know, and that's the mm-hmm. thing is that when, when I first tell people like, well, detach blame from something, then then they go and then they go and let themselves get abused or something, right? <laughs> well, they, you know, they're, they're hitting me, but they, I'm sure they have a good reason. Must be a protest gesture. Oh, goodness. That's fine. <laughs> but, but you still need to not be there to be hit. Right. Because that's the same thing, right? Because my question was to you was actually... What action can you take to fix the problem Mm -hmm. is the mindset you should be in. Not don't hold them blameless per se, although I think blame is not helpful, but what action can I take to fix the problem? And if that action is leaving, that's still the right action. Yeah. Um, It's just not associated with blame, which I also actually think makes it easier. 
I have a real hard time telling people you're a terrible person and I need to leave. I have a much easier time telling people there's something incompatible about our interaction where I need X and you're not willing, you're not able to give me X and I've evaluated it and I can't be happy without it. So I need to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I run that by my relationships all the time. Like, is this still benefiting the both of us? And I, I detach myself. If I'm seeing problems on uh, in my partner's side that I don't understand or I don't think are healthy or I don't feel I need to understand, I detach myself and say, okay, regardless of what's happening with them, what am I going to do about it? Is this something that's healthy? Is this something that I want to continue? Where do I fit into this interaction and how do I proceed? I have a really good relationship, I think, with my primary partner. We've been together for 10 years. It's been really great. I was trying to be very supportive of the very difficult role of working mother that she's engaged in. And so I was continually engaging in this, well, how can I solve whatever the problem is? Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I was solving problems, but I was disconnecting, right? So I was having trouble feeling emotionally interested in my primary partner okay okay and not in a blame way just they weren't there for the things that I needed to be connected as a human being Mm -hmm. you know and so I was I sat her down eventually and said look I need a certain level of and for me really the big thing was conversation okay I'm a huge extrovert I talk for a living I need to talk to people that I care about she's a huge introvert and talking is very energy intensive for her Mm -hmm. I'm working on not feeling unheard if if the amount that she sends me back isn't a similar amount because Mm -hmm. You got to look at the amount of effort that's there, not the amount of volume. Right. So, so yeah, like, okay. I will sit down for 15 minutes while watching my son and knock out like five pages of text. <laughs> you know, uh, I can type, if you believe it, as fast as I talk. Wow. Yeah. And That's I talk impressive. very fast. Yes. I actually slow down for this podcast and I still talk too fast for the recording. <laughs> so I am very able to create volumes of communication material. And of course, then she's in the unenviable position of finding, reading that sort of material emotionally intense and getting buried in it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, feeling like she has to respond to all of it and me feeling frustrated that she's not responding to enough of it. So I said, it's not a blame situation, but I am truly concerned that I will not be able to care about you if this continues. Okay. Like the part of me that is that cares about you is I'm losing it, and I don't even know how or why, but I can't. Like, it's not getting whatever it needs to live. Okay, like, yeah. Not a blame scenario, just we want to still be in a relationship. We have to work this out. That allowed us to have the kind of conversation that I think we needed to have to to workshop solutions Mm -hmm. and to say things like, okay, okay, okay. I don't need back word for word what I send you. Mm -hmm. You know, here's what, you know, what can you actually do? Let's start with that. And then I'll tell you, well, is that enough? Mm -hmm. And then I can reevaluate, like, is that enough for me? And obviously it must be, right? Because we were together for 10 years. So it's only relatively recently this has been a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, she always wanted the kid and she did great. I mean, just, but as he's moved into being a toddler, it's been really problematic for me because he started taking up the space that I used to occupy. Right, yeah. Suddenly giving that attention to me is work because she's getting her needs met. I see. Again, not a blame thing. My son has needs. And of course, yeah. She has of to course. meet those needs, and I have to meet those needs. But you know, you could say you could you could phrase it as being angry. You could be like, ever since we've had this, my you know, this child, you've ignored me. Like you care more about this kid than not than me. Like we had a kid together, and then you just gave up on me. And isn't there as I hear all the time people who are having relationship issues? Right. And the thing is, it's just not about who did 
the wrong thing. It's about being willing to critically examine any claim that the other person has. I mean, if you look at any philosophy from any oppressed group, the key phrase is, we said that there was a problem and you didn't believe us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, black people have been saying that cops murder them forever. And now that we have video cameras, white people going, wow, cops murder you? Who knew? And black people going, we knew. We told you. <laughs> we told you every day for a hundred years. And you were like, nah, cops are good people. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> oh, sometimes we can be such shits, we humans. <laughs> the point we're not shits that's yeah. exactly oh, yeah okay my bad the point you're right when you say things like we're shits now you have to be invested in deciding that you're not participating in that that you're not part of that i became a part of the problem just then okay you, you can't be a shit and you can't be good either you can only be healthy and healthier and unhealthy and unhealthier to the people around you there you go okay right and there and these are not time fixed things you don't get to build up being healthy and then excuse being unhealthy, mm -hmm. right? And vice versa. You're not a bad or unhealthy person because you were unhealthy for a really long time. If you go full Scrooge on it and come out tomorrow being nice to everyone around you, you're just nice to everyone around you. That's it. Mm -hmm. The rest of that's not doesn't matter. Right. Like, and some people who you hurt won't want to be around you because they have legitimate trauma mm -hmm. and they're doing their own boundaries and their own needs. But that's different than you being a bad person. That's people responding to traumatic events. Right. In answer to the original question, why do good people do bad things? The answer is because literally everyone's a good person, but a lot of actions are still bad. Mm -hmm. So all good people do bad things. Yeah, yeah. And if you think that you're not doing bad things, that just means you aren't critically examining the things that people are telling you you're doing wrong. Huh. Because there's just no way. Between linguistic confusion, between differing starting points, between layers of privilege and, and oppression, there's no way that you are not doing something that hurts people around you. Unless maybe you're the Dalai Lama. Even him, I'm sure. Oh no, he's pretty good, I gotta say. I've read a lot of the stuff about how he interacts, <laughs> and if you were gonna have a role model for being a really good person, I would, I would go look at the Dalai Lama. He's pretty amazing, apparently. But, um... It doesn't help you to be angry at your failures because that only teaches you to avoid failing. Yeah. Every creative discipline, we train people to fail. If you want to be really good as an artist, you have to fail a lot. People that can't fail can't be artists. If you can't fail right. morally, you can't be amazing at morals. You're going to fail regardless. The question is, are you going to notice? Oh. Right? So to some extent, everybody who isn't an artist is constantly failing at being a good artist. They just don't notice because they're not making a, they're not trying to be a good artist. Mm. All right, so we are running out of time. So we're going to do our ending. And for the first time, we now know what our topic for next week in advance is going to be. So we're Yay. getting better at this a little yes. bit every time. Next week is communication is hard. It is hard. Like, really hard. It's so hard. <laughs> and if you just listen to this episode, it's going to parallel well because it's going to help you get less mad at people who don't communicate well with you because it turns out communication may it's, not be what you think it is. Yes. It's just so uh, hard. So, tune in for that. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, like, comment, subscribe. You are. Yeah, so feel free to reach out to us with a, a question or any questions that you have and uh, topic suggestions. We're open to talk about anything that you want to hear. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> that is what you say every time. I've seen that three or four times. Thanks for listening. Bye. I like. <laughs> <laughs> all right, catch you all next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>